I was raised on army posts all over the world. Men in uniform were my first heroes, my first saints. I revered soldiers, and to this day I'm still drawn to them, to their values of service, integrity, courage, selflessness, and leadership. All the soldiers I've ever known, including my own career officer, dad, tried hard to live up to the highest ideals and risked profligately for the profession and the causes they believed in. So you may be surprised to hear that I've resisted every war since Vietnam and that I can no longer support militarism or even nationalism. Am I still a patriot? One who deeply loves her country and all soldiers everywhere protecting those they love. Here's my story. My dad was a practicing attorney with a doctorate of letters in law from the University of Wisconsin when he entered World War II as a wiry, young, ROTC-trained, and recently promoted captain, reserve captain. Three years later, and 30 pounds lighter, he returned home, a highly decorated, war-weary colonel. When I asked him later, Daddy, what is war? He explained that sometimes bad people want to hurt Americans, so soldiers have to go and fight. Dad's shooting war was over before I was born in 1946. But my entire childhood was constrained by the memory and the possibility of war. Now you would think military brats would feel safe and secure growing up on fenced and guarded compounds, but what I learned was fear. I simply could not imagine why so many bad people would want to come all the way over here to America to kill nice people like my mom and my sisters and me, or why so many nice American soldiers spent so much time in tanks and trucks and planes getting ready for war. To my mind, America was a perfectly wonderful place. It didn't occur to me to wonder whether other faraway children, just like me, might also be lying awake, terrorized by the thought of their fathers suddenly being snatched away into war, of armies marching into their cities, climbing in their windows, beating down their doors. All the soldiers I ever knew were really nice and certainly not the source of any child's nightmare. Back then, I was the military's most enthusiastic flag waver and cheerleader. 
drafted at birth. I was quick to claim that military brats were the proudest, luckiest kids on earth. So it's a little weird to confess that as far back as I can remember, the question of what did daddy do in the war was treated in my family like almost a shameful family secret. When my parents' war ended, they were told to put the war behind you. So until an old family friend told me in college about my dad's two purple hearts, his legion of merit, his bronze and silver stars, I'd never heard about them. My dad was adamantly silent about his war. And mom told me later that she was forbidden to discuss it. Mom did reluctantly tell me the story about my dad's heroism, but only under pressure. It seems that dad's tank battalion had long been under a heavy and highly lethal period of shelling despite a negotiated temporary truce, which the other side apparently hadn't yet heard about. My father was an open-hearted, idealistic man with little reason to doubt the humanity of his German military counterparts. He thought most officers, regardless of country, were good-hearted patriots like himself open to providing some relief to all their youthful charges serving under both commands. So sick of the incessant, senseless days of casualties, Dad jumped in his tank, white truce sheets flying, drove right through the smoke and the booming rounds, through the opposing tank lines and deep into enemy territory, even as his men watched breathlessly from their foxholes, sure, he would be killed or captured and tortured. Dad eventually found his way to his German counterpart field officers and informed them of the announced temporary truce, which was news to them. Mom said, Dad always considered those actions simply logical, necessary, what any officer would do. And later, when some of those same crack members of Rommel's Africa Corps were captured, Dad gallantly saw them to safety in a prisoner of war exchange. After that awful war, though, Dad was never again able to sleep or wake up peacefully. For 50 years, he had terrible nightmares. Apparently, a family secret we children weren't allowed to mention to anyone or or even to notice. Growing up, we always just knew never to go anywhere near my dad when he was sleeping, even if he was just napping in front of a ball game. Mom's fear for our safety was clear in her frequent reminders and in her wide blue eyes. 
I must have learned those lessons early and the hard way because I just always knew to be wary of my gentle, affectionate dad. Never to touch him without warning or come up behind him or surprise him or startle him, especially when he was asleep. My sisters and I weren't allowed to leave our beds at night, but sometimes, in yet one more dark, scary, strange new house, little girls just have to get up. I would dance on my tiptoes outside my parents' open bedroom door, calling softly from a safe distance, Daddy! Daddy! Until finally, Dad would jerk and startle awake, throw his hands in front of his face and strike out wildly and half-rise, straining to make out some sense of my nearby dark shape and small voice. And then his face would soften. And he'd accompany me down some long, unfamiliar corridor to our current bathroom. And afterward, he'd walk me back to bed planting an extra kiss on my head, as much for himself as for me. Mom slept more deeply than Dad after busy days of chasing kids around. She explained Dad's bizarre behaviors tersely. It's what all returning soldiers do after war. And that was that. But we knew we were expected to hide Dad's somehow guilty secret. Never to ask questions and never even mention it to anyone. Eventually, this situation seemed almost normal and natural. But normal and natural are not the fruits of war. I quite reasonably found it hard to understand also why my dad's first thought when he woke up was to kill me. Once I overheard a joke. Someone told on my dad at one of their many boisterous cocktail parties. I only heard the punchline, which was followed by loud, raucous laughter that my dad joined in heartily. But not really. I could tell. I was so upset that my mom reluctantly took me aside and told me the story, which helped me understand my dad's challenges. Toward the end of dad's war, late on a moonless night, an orderly who shared dad's tent went outside to relieve himself, and coming back in, he accidentally crawled over my sleeping dad. And according to the funny jokes punchline, the whole camp was awakened to shouts of, Help! Help! The colonel is killing the corporal! Apparently, it took several burly recruits some time to pull my poor, crazy, emaciated dad off his unfortunate orderly before he could successfully choke him to death. Dad joined his friends that night in making a big macho joke of that unfortunate incident for obvious reasons. But to my young ears, that story was heartbreaking, 
because it tragically explained the enormous fear and continual tensions, tension my poor dad must have been under during those many long years lying awake with his men in open tents scattered across the desert floor. That was also the time my mother broke down and told me the other story, the good story I just told you about my dad's selfless courage under fire. To this day, veterans of combat must keep up their hale and hearty appearances or they miss promotions, and they're pushed out of their cherished and, for many, their only professions. In addition to what we now call PTSD, my dad also had to conceal his recurrent malaria, a lifetime ailment he picked up in Africa. I never understood while growing up why dad sometimes hurried home in the middle of his workday and jumped into bed shaking violently, or why my mom threw blanket after blanket over him and slammed the bedroom door behind her. Many years after Dad's war service in Africa and Italy, his expertise in military strategy led him to a three-year stint on the faculty of the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where he thoroughly enjoyed clambering around Gettysburg with his youthful scholars, and where late into every night I watched him pour over his beloved multi-volume war biographies by Churchill, Eisenhower, Lee, Washington, and Rommel. Years after he retired, I was trying to understand a graduate history class, so I timidly dared raise the subject of the politics of his war. I was especially curious about his African missions. What did they have to do with saving our allies from Hitler or with fighting Japanese aggressions? I personally now believe that we were securing post-war hegemony over Libyan and Middle Eastern oil resources. But back then, I only wondered aloud, what were you doing, Dad? charging around North Africa with all those men and tanks. Dad paused for a long moment, sighed heavily, shook his head and said, damned if I know. What a tragedy for any soldier to doubt what was gained from their long, terrible years of blood and sacrifice. Yet few veterans today are convinced that their wars were or are necessary or even moral. On this very day, today, Western and Libyan factions are still fighting over those same oil-rich territories my dad and 300,000 soldiers contested over 70 years ago. German General Erwin Rommel wrote, Rivers of blood were poured over those miserable strips of land, which in normal times, not even the poorest Arab would have bothered his head about. 
Will outsiders still care about those lands and people when their oil runs out? It's easy enough to find pretexts for war, noble-sounding excuses to justify taking whatever one wants from strangers who are quickly designated as the world's most brutal enemies yet. But soldiers cannot be blamed for the moral confusion or the mendacity of her or his leaders. If our presidents, politicians, partisans, pundits, and preachers, not to mention the United Nations of the world, cannot agree on whether or not to go to war, if we can't even openly discuss or question war's true reasons, costs, and goals, aren't we expecting a bit much of our soldiers? On this Memorial Day, may we remember with the deepest affection and the greatest respect all wholehearted wholehearted, precious soldiers everywhere who have given their last full measure of devotion to war. Everyone someone's child, lover, friend, parent, grandchild, sister, brother. Everyone be leaving their duty clear their loyalties and causes just, their leaders trustworthy and righteous. Soldiers everywhere are alike in their idealism and their innocence, and they all stand valiantly on high walls, risking their lives to come between those they love and destruction. I'm not a pacifist. There might be a circumstance when I would kill someone to protect someone I love. But no mother ever sent her son or daughter, and no soldier ever signed up to die or kill for cheaper oil. Soldiers and peace activists, we're not adversaries. We're partners, working for the same goals, a safer, gentler, more just planet. Peace activists are a soldier's best friends, working hard to keep soldiers out of unnecessary immoral wars. Maybe we'll someday realize that, like slavery, all past wars were immoral. Signing up to defend the weak is certainly patriotic, but no more patriotic, though far more dangerous, than spending one's entire life resisting the injustices of catastrophically cruel, stupid, wasteful wars. Peace activists keep protesting until the last soldiers come home. That's why the propagandists work so hard to characterize anti-war protesters as degenerate, disloyal, cowardly soldier haters. No one hates war. 
as much as a soldier who's been to war. No one understands war's real costs and insanities more clearly. Combat vets know wars don't make things better. What they and their families do know is who carries forever the wounds that war wrecks upon their vulnerable young minds and bodies. These days, we throw around the words defense, security, and national interests. But today's wars don't make us safer. They don't defend us from invasions. And they don't make us more secure from the exponentially multiplying number of terrorists taking revenge for those wars. Our real national interests lie not in war, but in a strong economy, in jobs for everyone at fair wages, well-educated citizens, and truly democratic processes. Wars take all that away by pouring all our tax money into war industry profits and blowing stuff up. Whenever any government anywhere sends soldiers hastily into wars or interferes with another nation's sovereignty or invades or attacks or occupies another country or murders innocents, we should all rise up to protest. War is never the best solution to any problem. War is the problem. War doesn't prevent catastrophes. War is a catastrophe. War isn't an appropriate response to horrible injustices. War adds infinitely to the sum of horrible injustices. Eisenhower said, the people of the world genuinely want peace. And someday, their leaders are going to have to give in and give it to them. I encourage all of you to gather this Tuesday at the Frederick Friends Meeting House at 7 p.m., to help us urge Congressman Delaney to generously fund a defense budget that supports war prevention, peace building, diplomacy, and better care for our veterans, but not war. It's time, folks, to hold our political representatives accountable to their duty and obligation to keep us safe by keeping the peace. And in so doing, we will be living into our highest Unitarian Universalist values and ideals, even as we work together to realize our shared vision of global peace, liberty, and justice, not just for some, but for all. I was raised on army posts all over the world. Men in uniform were my first heroes, my first saints. I revered soldiers, and to this day, I'm still drawn to them. 
to their values of service, integrity, courage, selflessness, and leadership. All the soldiers I've ever known, including my own career officer, Dad, tried hard to live up to the highest ideals and risked profligately for the profession and the causes they believed in. So you may be surprised to hear that I've resisted every war since Vietnam and that I can no longer support militarism or even nationalism. Am I still a patriot? One who deeply loves her country and all soldiers everywhere protecting those they love. Here's my story. My dad was a practicing attorney with a doctorate of letters in law from the University of Wisconsin when he entered World War II as a wiry, young, ROTC-trained, and recently promoted captain, reserve captain. Three years later, and 30 pounds lighter, he returned home, a highly decorated, war-weary colonel. When I asked him later, Daddy, what is war? He explained that sometimes bad people want to hurt Americans, so soldiers have to go and fight. Dad's shooting war was over before I was born in 1946. But my entire childhood was constrained by the memory and the possibility of war. Now you would think military brats would feel safe and secure growing up on fenced and guarded compounds, but what I learned was fear. I simply could not imagine why so many bad people would want to come all the way over here to America to kill nice people like my mom and my sisters and me. Or why so many nice American soldiers spent so much time in tanks and trucks and planes getting ready for war. To my mind, America was a perfectly wonderful place. It didn't occur to me to wonder whether other faraway children, just like me, might also be lying awake, terrorized by the thought of their fathers suddenly being snatched away into war, of armies marching into their cities, climbing in their windows, beating down their doors. All the soldiers I ever knew were really nice and certainly not the source of any child's nightmare. Back then, I was the military's most enthusiastic flag waver and cheerleader. Drafted at birth, I was quick to claim that military brats were the proudest, luckiest kids on earth. So it's a little weird to confess that as far back as I can remember, the question of what did daddy do in the war was treated in my family like 
almost a shameful family secret. When my parents' war ended, they were told to put the war behind you. So until an old family friend told me in college about my dad's two purple hearts, his legion of merit, his bronze and silver stars, I'd never heard about them. My dad was adamantly silent about his war. And mom told me later that she was forbidden to discuss it. Mom did reluctantly tell me the story about my dad's heroism, but only under pressure. It seems that dad's tank battalion had long been under a heavy and highly lethal period of shelling, despite a negotiated temporary truce, which the other side apparently hadn't yet heard about. My father was an open-hearted, idealistic man with little reason to doubt the humanity of his German military counterparts. He thought most officers, regardless of country, were good-hearted patriots like himself, open to providing some relief to all their youthful charges serving under both commands. So sick of the incessant, senseless days of casualties, Dad jumped in his tank, white truce sheets flying, drove right through the smoke and the booming rounds, through the opposing tank lines and deep into enemy territory, even as his men watched breathlessly from their foxholes, sure he would be killed or captured and tortured. Dad eventually found his way to his German counterpart field officers and informed them of the announced temporary truce, which was news to them. Mom said, Dad always considered those actions simply logical, necessary, what any officer would do. And later, when some of those same crack members of Rommel's Africa Corps were captured, Dad gallantly saw them to safety in a prisoner-of-war exchange. After that awful war, though, Dad was never again able to sleep or wake up peacefully. For 50 years, he had terrible nightmares. Apparently a family secret we children weren't allowed to mention to anyone or, or even to notice. Growing up, we always just knew never to go anywhere near my dad when he was sleeping. Even if he was just napping in front of a ball game. Mom's fear for our safety was clear in her frequent reminders and in her wide blue eyes. I must have learned those lessons early and the hard way because I just always knew to be wary of my gentle, affectionate dad. Never to touch him without warning or come up behind him or surprise him or startle him, especially when he was asleep. 
My sisters and I weren't allowed to leave our beds at night, but sometimes, in yet one more dark, scary, strange new house, little girls just have to get up. I would dance on my tiptoes outside my parents' open bedroom door, calling softly from a safe distance, Daddy! Daddy! Until finally, Dad would jerk and startle awake, throw his hands in front of his face and strike out wildly and half-rise, straining to make out some sense of my nearby dark shape and small voice. And then his face would soften. And he'd accompany me down some long, unfamiliar corridor to our current bathroom. And afterward, he'd walk me back to bed, planting an extra kiss on my head, as much for himself as for me. Mom slept more deeply than Dad after busy days of chasing kids around. She explained Dad's bizarre behaviors tersely. It's what all returning soldiers do after war. And that was that. But we knew we were expected to hide Dad's somehow guilty secret. Never to ask questions. And never even mention it to anyone Eventually, this situation seemed almost normal and natural, but normal and natural are not the fruits of war. I quite reasonably found it hard to understand also why my dad's first thought when he woke up was to kill me. Once, I overheard a joke. Someone told on my dad at one of their many boisterous cocktail parties, I only heard the punchline, which was followed by loud, raucous laughter that my dad joined in heartily. But not really. I could tell. I was so upset that my mom reluctantly took me aside and told me the story, which helped me understand my dad's challenges. Toward the end of dad's war, late on a moonless night, An orderly who shared Dad's tent went outside to relieve himself, and coming back in, he accidentally crawled over my sleeping dad. And according to the funny joke's punchline, the whole camp was awakened to shouts of, Help! Help! The colonel is killing the corporal! Apparently, it took several burly recruits some time to pull my poor, crazy, emaciated dad off his unfortunate orderly before he could successfully choke him to death. Dad joined his friends that night in making a big macho joke of that unfortunate incident for obvious reasons. But to my young ears, that story was heartbreaking because it tragically explained the enormous fear and continual tensions, tension my poor dad must have been under during those many long years, lying awake with his men in open tents scattered across the desert floor. 
That was also the time my mother broke down and told me the other story, the good story I just told you about my dad's selfless courage under fire. To this day, veterans of combat must keep up their hale and hearty appearances or they miss promotions, and they're pushed out of their cherished and, for many, their only professions. In addition to what we now call PTSD, my dad also had to conceal his recurrent malaria, a lifetime ailment he picked up in Africa. I never understood while growing up why dad sometimes hurried home in the middle of his workday and jumped into bed shaking violently, or why my mom threw blanket after blanket over him and slammed the bedroom door behind her. Many years after Dad's war service in Africa and Italy, his expertise in military strategy led him to a three-year stint on the faculty of the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where he thoroughly enjoyed clambering around Gettysburg with his youthful scholars, and where late into every night I watched him pour over his beloved multi-volume war biographies by Churchill, Eisenhower, Lee, Washington, and Rommel. Years after he retired, I was trying to understand a graduate history class, so I timidly dared raise the subject of the politics of his war. I was especially curious about his African missions. What did they have to do with saving our allies from Hitler or with fighting Japanese aggressions? I personally now believe that we were securing post-war hegemony over Libyan and Middle Eastern oil resources. But back then, I only wondered aloud, what were you doing, Dad? charging around North Africa with all those men and tanks. Dad paused for a long moment, sighed heavily, shook his head and said, damned if I know. What a tragedy for any soldier to doubt what was gained from their long, terrible years of blood and sacrifice. Yet few veterans today are convinced that their wars were or are necessary or even moral. On this very day, today, Western and Libyan factions are still fighting over those same oil-rich territories my dad and 300,000 soldiers contested over 70 years ago. German General Erwin Rommel wrote, Rivers of blood were poured over those miserable strips of land, which in normal times, not even the poorest Arab would have bothered his head about. Will outsiders still care about those lands and people when their oil runs out? It's easy enough to find pretexts for war, noble-sounding excuses to justify taking whatever one wants from strangers. 
who are quickly designated as the world's most brutal enemies yet. But soldiers cannot be blamed for the moral confusion or the mendacity of her or his leaders. If our presidents, politicians, partisans, pundits, and preachers, not to mention the United Nations of the world, cannot agree on whether or not to go to war, if we can't even openly discuss or question war's true reasons, costs, and goals, aren't we expecting a bit much of our soldiers? On this Memorial Day, may we remember with the deepest affection and the greatest respect all wholehearted, wholehearted, precious soldiers everywhere who have given their last full measure of devotion to war. Everyone someone's child, lover, friend, parent, grandchild, sister, brother. Everyone believing their duty clear, their loyalties and causes just, their leaders trustworthy and righteous. Soldiers everywhere are alike in their idealism and their innocence. And they all stand valiantly on high walls, risking their lives to come between those they love and destruction. I'm not a pacifist. There might be a circumstance when I would kill someone to protect someone I love. But no mother ever sent her son or daughter, and no soldier ever signed up to die or kill for cheaper oil. Soldiers and peace activists, we're not adversaries. We're partners, working for the same goals, a safer, gentler, more just planet. Peace activists are a soldier's best friends, working hard to keep soldiers out of unnecessary immoral wars. Maybe we'll someday realize that, like slavery, all past wars were immoral. Signing up to defend the weak is certainly patriotic, but no more patriotic, though far more dangerous, than spending one's entire life resisting the injustices of catastrophically cruel, stupid, wasteful wars. Peace activists keep protesting until the last soldiers come home. That's why the propagandists work so hard to characterize anti-war protesters as degenerate, disloyal, cowardly soldier-haters. No one hates war as much as a soldier who's been to war. No one understands war's real costs and insanities more clearly. Combat vets know wars don't make things better. 
What they and their families do know is who carries forever the wounds that war wrecks upon their vulnerable young minds and bodies. These days, we throw around the words defense, security, and national interests, but today's wars don't make us safer. They don't defend us from invasions, and they don't make us more secure from the exponentially multiplying number of terrorists taking revenge for those wars. Our real national interests lie not in war, but in a strong economy, in jobs for everyone at fair wages, well-educated citizens, and truly democratic processes. Wars take all that away by pouring all our tax money into war industry profits and blowing stuff up. Whenever any government anywhere sends soldiers hastily into wars or interferes with another nation's sovereignty or invades or attacks or occupies another country or murders innocents, we should all rise up to protest. War is never the best solution to any problem. War is the problem. War doesn't prevent catastrophes. War is a catastrophe. War isn't an appropriate response to horrible injustices. War adds infinitely to the sum of horrible injustices. Eisenhower said, The people of the world genuinely want peace. And someday, their leaders are going to have to give in and give it to them. I encourage all of you to gather this Tuesday at the Frederick Friends Meeting House at 7 p.m. to help us urge Congressman Delaney to generously fund a defense budget that supports war prevention, peace building, diplomacy, and better care for our veterans, but not war. It's time, folks, to hold our political representatives accountable to their duty and obligation to keep us safe by keeping the peace. And in so doing, we will be living into our highest Unitarian Universalist values and ideals, even as we work together to realize our shared vision of global peace, liberty, and justice, not just for some, but for all.